please take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, we will finish up starting in verse 50 this morning. Well, as I said uh, previously, this morning we come to the end of our long journey through the book of Luke. It has been a, a blessing to observe the various teachings and events of our Lord Jesus' life. It's been an experience of uh, coming to grips with His glory in, in many different ways that He's presented Himself and taught about Himself to us. And this morning, we'll finish the book in like manner, beholding the glory of Christ once more from Luke's account of Jesus' life and ministry. In truth, the event that we have to consider this morning is one that's, that's often overshadowed by other glorious accomplishments of Jesus. And so my, my hope is that as we consider it together, that, that this morning will be a particular encouragement to you as it's been a particular encouragement to me in studying the passage. The event that we have before us to consider is that of Jesus' ascension into heaven. And in a chronological study of any gospel, you can understand why people are tempted to just overlook this event. After all, it follows the emotionally charged Passion Week, and it follows the all-important moment of the crucifixion, and of course, the glorious resurrection. By the time we get through reading of the resurrection and all of the benefits that it bears out for us, by the time we, we get done with that, then it, it'd be easy to surmise that we've gotten all the proverbial juice out of the fruit, right? But I want to submit to you this morning that we find in consideration of these last few verses in the book of Luke that that extra squeeze is really worth the juice because the ascension provides for us a, a, a view of some aspects of Christ's glory that we just don't get from anywhere else in the Bible. In fact, a, a lot of the teaching that we find in the epistles hangs on the truths made known to us in Jesus' ascension and His subsequent session. That The session of Christ is how theologians refer to His being seated at the right hand of God the Father. So pivotal is this event of Jesus' ascension that it, it proves to be transformative for the disciples. It's one of the three points that we're going to observe in Luke's writing this morning. First, we'll consider Jesus' blessing that he pronounces on the disciples. Second, we'll consider Jesus' ascension. And last, we'll observe the disciples' transformation. So with that outline there, that three-point outline in mind. Let's now read the text of Scripture together and ask for the Lord's help and blessing as we unpack it. 
Luke 24, starting in verse 50. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. This is the word of the Lord, friends. Let's go to him now and ask for his blessing. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, the things that we have to consider this morning are, frankly, too glorious for us to comprehend. And so we need the help of your spirit to do so, God. I I need the help of your spirit to articulate these truths. And so I ask that you would help me to do that in a clear way. Lord, please help me to teach uh, with uh, clarity and boldness as I ought. Keep me free from error over the next few minutes, Lord. And God, we pray that us, your people, in gleaning from these scriptures, Lord, that, that we would behold Christ, that we would behold his glory, God, that just as the disciples experienced transformation in beholding his glory, Lord God, that, that we would be transformed, that we would be made more like him, and that in being made more like Christ, we'd be more pleasing to you. We ask it all in his name. Amen. As we consider the, the final words of Luke's gospel, it, it can be rather easy to get our timeline messed up. Because given the way that Luke writes here, it would seem as though there's no separation between verses 49 that we concluded with uh, last week and verse 50 that we pick up with uh, this week. However, we know that uh, from Luke's writing in Acts chapter 1 that 40 days separate these two verses, verse 49 to verse 50. It was after spending 40 days making appearances and proofs of himself to the disciples in, in various ways and in, in various sizes of disciple groups. It's after all of these appearances that Luke tells us that Jesus let out the disciples as far as Bethany. Bethany was a, a familiar spot of retreat for Jesus. The journey there would have certainly stirred up a lot of emotions for the disciples, as the Garden of Gethsemane is there in Bethany. It's where Jesus, not long ago, entered into his greatest hour of suffering. And they now, these disciples, would behold the most visible evidence of Jesus' glory. Indeed, the only other moment that Jesus' glory is as evidently displayed as it is here, is at his transfiguration. But before Jesus is taken up in glory, he had one last thing to do for his disciples. In fact, we see here that not only is this the the final earthly activity that Jesus performs for his disciples, but this is the activity that Jesus would finally and forever 
engage in on behalf of his people. Jesus actually begins a ministry here in his final moments with the disciples that he will carry into heaven with him for eternity future. Luke says that once Jesus had led them out as far as Bethany, then lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And the blessing that Jesus pronounced on the disciples was, was no doubt the ironic blessing prescribed for the priest to use in Numbers chapter 6. It's there that we read this. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall bless them, or excuse me, you shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So, so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. This is the prescription from the Lord. You see, the, the scriptures are clear that those involved in priestly service, mediating between the people and God, are, are not free to engage in that activity in whatever way they see fit. No, God prescribes what's required of the people and of the priests. And God determines how and when the priests may pronounce grace and peace to God's people. And we know that it is the ironic blessing that Jesus uses here because it takes the form of the ironic blessing. With the lifting up of his hands, we are to recall the first blessing issued from Aaron, which set the, the pattern thereafter for all the priestly blessings. In Leviticus 9, we read of Aaron's first priestly blessing following his first priestly offering. After making sacrifice before the Lord for the people, the scriptures say, Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And that scene really foreshadows this event in Luke. There, at Aaron's inaugural blessing, he, he had made the sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. He had dipped his hands in the sacrificial blood to place it on the horns of the altar, and to splash that blood against the sides of the altar. And only then were his hands raised to plead the blessings of grace from God and peace with God. But that, that grace and peace, friends, it came based only on the sacrificial blood which covered his hands. So here, as Jesus raised his hands to pronounce the blessings of grace from God and peace with God, these blessings would come based only on the sacrifice that marked his hands. Yet the blessings, those priestly 
blessings of the Old Covenant were far inferior to those that Jesus pronounced here. The priestly blessing that Jesus pronounced was profoundly more significant than that of Aaron to Israel. We hear from the ironic blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you, which under the Old Covenant was only to ask that the Lord would protect and preserve Israel from its physical enemies. And needed as that protection was, it, it was a mere shadow of the protection for God's people that Jesus secures and now promises to the disciples in Luke 24. Jesus is promising that based on his sacrifice, God's people would be protected from the spiritual and physical enemies of sin and death. When the Old Testament saints would hear the priests go on in prayer that the Lord would make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, they could expect that so long as Israel was faithful, then the Lord's favor would follow them. Likewise, in hearing that the Lord would lift up his countenance upon them and give them peace, they could expect that provided that they continued in faithful obedience to God, that the peace, or the shalom of God would rest on them. Meaning that, that beyond just peace from war, the nation of Israel would experience wholeness and completeness throughout their land. But the Old Testament saints rightly understood these promises of blessings to be conditional. Should they give over to sin, their fellowship with God and expectation of His gracious favor would be lost until they turned from their sin in genuine repentance. That's the cycle that we see happening throughout the Old Testament again and again. By contrast, when Jesus asks this blessing on His disciples, it is altogether different. Having become the perfect and final offering for sin, Jesus now stands as the true and better high priest of God's people, pronouncing this priestly blessing in a new covenant context. Under the new covenant, the people of God would be kept eternally secure by God to be His people for His own possession. They experience the unmerited favor and the unconditional love of God because Jesus has fulfilled all of the conditions on their behalf. Thus, Paul says of Christians in Romans chapter 5, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this peace is fixed and final because the sacrifice of Christ was the final sacrifice to be made for sins, you see. The only work that is now carried out before God the Father is for Christ to plead His own atoning blood, which has already been shed for God's elect. Paul speaks to this reality in Romans chapter 8 and verse 34, saying, Who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. One theologian remarks concerning Jesus' blessing here in Luke 24, He blessed as one having authority. He commanded the blessing which He had purchased. Now the question may rightly be asked, well, I, I, I can see how this priestly intercession of Jesus can be gathered from what Luke says here. But, but, but can we gather also from Luke that this ministry of Jesus is continued by the Lord Jesus? And the answer is yes. Yes, that, that's what Luke intends to communicate in verse 51. We move to verse 51 to consider our second point this morning, and that is Jesus' ascension. In verse 51 we read, While He blessed them, He parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And though a simple reading of this may seem like a sort of divine curtain was being called while Jesus was taking one last bow, that's not really the case. It's not as though Jesus had yet to complete his remarks to the disciples and then music started playing, you know, like what happens sometimes as celebrities, you know, try to finish their acceptance speeches at uh, award shows. No, no, Luke here has a clear message that's being conveyed through the structure of his writing. And that is that Jesus began blessing his disciples and was carried up into heaven as he did so, in order to show the continuation of his priestly ministry of intercession. One commentator puts it this way, His being parted from them did not put an end to his blessing them. For the intercession which he went to heaven to make for all his is a continuation of the blessing. He began to bless them on earth, but He went to heaven to go on with it. The ascension is important for many reasons, church. But none more than the fact that it is the key to understanding that Jesus' priestly blessing is not an isolated experience of a select few disciples. His priestly blessing and ministry is the ongoing experience of all disciples everywhere. And a vital ministry this is, friends. Because there is no other high priest who's able to stand before God the Father as He does. Listen to the way the author of Hebrews describes it. The former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But He holds His priesthood permanently, because He continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Far from Jesus completing His priestly ministry in being taken up, his ascension underscores the continuation of His priestly ministry in heaven. Still, the, the ascension 
is also important as it is the royal procession leading to the session of Christ or the seating of Christ at the Father's right hand. The ascension stands out as as distinct among all the the, the post-resurrection appearances of Christ. We find here he, he did not vanish from the disciples' view as he had at other post-resurrection appearances. Rather, here, he was gradually taken up before them to to show the glorious finality of his work of redemption. This was to show that he would no longer be engaging them in his earthly ministry because his earthly ministry was complete. His work of atonement for sins now finished, completed in totality. Christ now sits enthroned at the right hand of the Father. You see, while the ascension shows that His priestly ministry for the saints continues, it also shows that His work of redemption for all the saints is complete. It's the author of Hebrews again that says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. Beloved, the ascension is the pathway to Jesus entering into His session, His his being seated, which speaks to the completed nature of His work of redemption. So you can see that this event of Jesus' ascension is is a key element to understanding the gospel. It's why the the forefathers of the church included this truth in the most ancient and, and fundamental of confessions that we call the Apostles' Creed. We confessed it together just earlier in the service. We believe Jesus ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. This is why, friends, if you ask anyone, what has Christ accomplished in His death, burial, and resurrection, and they respond with anything less than the definite purchase of salvation for all those who will be saved throughout all history, if they respond with anything less than that, then they do not understand the gospel. People may say that the the doctrines of grace are, are overblown or not of great importance, but any serious meditation on the ascension and the session of Christ as described in the Scriptures produces a sovereign God theology. Because only a sovereign God theology is clear about the completed nature of eternal salvation for all of God's elect. And Christ being seated in heaven demands the acknowledgement and embrace of the truth that all that is necessary for salvation has been accomplished in Christ. Not one thing is needed from anyone else to secure eternal life for all who are called to it. 
The Spirit may have yet to manifest, manifest faith in some of God's elect, but, but there is nothing left to be done. Nothing left to be done that Christ hasn't completed. All this, you see, we understand from Christ being seated at the right hand of God. And His ascension, brothers and sisters, was the pathway to His exalted position at the Father's side. Furthermore, in, in contemplating the significance of the ascension, the apostles testified to us that it's by Christ's ascension and enthronement that God puts Him far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. This is the testimony of Ephesians chapter 1. Therefore, in Jesus' ascension and session, not only is salvation seen to be fully accomplished for the believer, we also see that our salvation is guarded from any and all cosmic powers that would seek to sabotage it. Christ sits in authoritative rule over any and all that would attempt to snatch us from the Father's hand. This is why Paul can confidently ask in Romans chapter 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he goes on to assert, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. His ascension marks His authoritative power to not just save souls, but to protect and sustain souls until we're all caught up together with Him in the clouds. Which brings us to the last point of significance as we consider the ascension and that is that in the ascension, those who are united to Christ by faith find assurance that our final home will be in heaven with Him. As you often hear from this lectern, friends, for those united to Christ by faith, what is true of Him in glory is true of us. Therefore, as we observe Him being taken up in glory here, we have good hope to believe what he says in John chapter 14. You remember his promise there, don't you? He said, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Church, in His ascension, Jesus does what He says He will do, going to His Father's house. And because of that, 
we can have the greatest assurance that He will in fact come again and take us to Himself. And that we might experience our own ascension. That where He is, we may be also. These are just some of the glorious and pastoral implications of the ascension of Jesus. And it's the glorious nature of these outworkings that produce what we see in the rest of our passage. In the rest of our passage, we find the transformation of the disciples. And it's these glorious realities that produce this transformation in the disciples. <clears throat> now, when I say transformation here, I don't mean that they were physically transformed in any way. This is not like to be confused with Jesus' transfiguration or anything like that. What I mean is that their attitude of heart was transformed. Look at the text. In verse 52, we read, And they worshipped Him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Now remember how Jesus found His disciples 40 days previous to this. They were holed up together in the upper room, afraid and full of doubts. Luke tells us in Acts chapter 1 that over these 40 days, Jesus presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs. And that alone certainly worked to bolster their faith in the reality of His Lordship. It solidified for them the fact that Jesus was who He said He was, and therefore He could do what He said He could do. Yet now, in this moment, with Jesus' departure, they were to be left alone in the world, without their Savior to, to guide and comfort them. So, what is it then that would produce in them what we see here? What is the cause of their transformation from scared and doubtful disciples to joy-filled worshipers? We're left to ask the question. Well, put simply, friends, their joy comes from their witness of this moment. It's their reception of His blessing and their observation of His departure. They believe that He's able to give them the fullness of the ironic blessing of grace and peace with God because He's conquered the grave. And He is clearly now the high priest who lives forever, making intercession for them. They're made to believe that they can withstand any trials that would befall them because they would experience His presence now in a new way in a way that transcends the physical dimension. This is what Jesus taught them prior to His suffering in John 16, verse 7. It's there that He said, Nonetheless, I tell you the truth, that it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And now, in witnessing His ascension, they're able to see 
how this is possible. And beyond that, they, they were infused with a whole new level of confidence in their own ascendancy into heaven. So what follows is joy. Profound joy. But it's not just joy that we see in the disciples. It's a joy which led to worship. Verse 52 tells us that they worshiped Jesus where He ascended. And verse 53 goes on to say they were continually in the temple blessing God. The disciples' witness of the ascension enabled them to behold Christ in such a way that brought forth a spontaneous outburst of worship and a commitment to regular corporate worship. Catch this. The disciples go from hiding out in fear together to boldly gathering together for corporate worship in Jesus' name in the temple. The idea here is that they would go regularly and routinely coming together in the temple to offer prayer and praise to God. Sound familiar? It's actually crucial that we we make this connection here, friends. Commitment to regular corporate worship is the appropriate response. It is the biblical response to seeing Christ as He has presented Himself to us in the Scriptures. Specifically here, worship is the response of the disciples to beholding the Lord Jesus as the faithful one who fulfills His promises. It's their response to beholding Jesus as the one true great high priest. It's their response to beholding Him as the sovereign Lord who saves and sustains His people. Be it any other facet of Jesus' glory made known to us in the ascension, or any other facet of His glory made known to us elsewhere in the Scriptures. Friends, the only appropriate response to perceiving the glory of Christ is worship. As one author writes, the glory of Christ is the joy, the exceeding joy of all true believers. And it's here in the ascension that the disciples and we come face to face with the profound glory of Christ. And so it's fitting here at the end of Luke's gospel. After all that's been known of the Lord, made known of the Lord within it, that Luke leaves off with the disciples responding in joyous worship. After all they've come to know of the Lord, joyous worship is the fitting response. And by implication, church, that's how we're called to respond as well. May it be so of us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we pray now 
that in hearing the truths of your word, God, and perhaps in, in seeing Jesus a bit more clearly now that, that you would do that in us. Lord, please now make us more consistent, more passionate, more enthused, more devoted worshipers. We owe it to you, Lord. You have given us all things in Christ. Father, Please make us those who worship you in spirit and in truth. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.